This is Civil Discourse on KURU 89.1 FM in Silver City and streaming on the Internet at gmcr.org. I'm your host, Jamie Newton. My guest is United States Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, who is with us by audio link from his Washington, D.C. office. Senator Heinrich, welcome to Civil Discourse. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me today. Let's begin with a very current issue. Funding for community health centers at more than 10,000 sites across the nation expired months ago on September 30th, 2017, threatening this system of health care for low-income people with limiting services and closing many facilities. Senator Heinrich, you and Senator Tom Udall are among 65 senators from both parties who've asked the Senate leadership to I'm quoting you now, immediately reauthorize funding for community health centers, unquote. How likely is success for this rare bipartisan effort, and what are the implications for New Mexico and the nation of funding or failure to fund community health centers? Well, I think if we were to fail to fund community health centers, it would be disastrous for especially rural communities across the country. And when you think in particular about southwestern New Mexico and the incredible work that Hidalgo Medical Services has done, which has the preponderance of community health centers in the state of New Mexico, and the recognition that they've gotten in terms of doing an effective job at delivering health care in a challenging frontier part of the country, it would be very bad news indeed. Fortunately, this is one of those issues that really impacts Republicans and Democrats across the board. And we've been able to put together a very strong coalition on this issue. And and we have some good news in that, you know, the budget agreement that has been reached tentatively in the last uh, less than 24 hours includes a two-year extension of the program and a substantial increase in funding, actually an increase of about $600 million in funding for these community health centers. We will come to that budget agreement momentarily. Let me ask this. The letter that you and Senator Udall co-signed February 5th included this language, community health centers are not only greatly improving the health and well-being of those they serve, they're also saving significant taxpayer dollars. So I know some of our listeners will want to know, how does paying for health services for poor people, including military veterans and families with children, save taxpayers money? Oh, it's a great question. And the way to think about it is that people are going to access these health care services. The question is, what is the, what is the access point and where is it in the timeline of actual illness? And where you access those services and whether it's early when you can fix it with a, a primary care visit, oftentimes just access to a, a nurse or a physician assistant versus accessing those services once you have an acute or an emergency department sort of situation can be completely different ends of the scale for how much those services cost. So the more we can push healthcare to the front end, primary care early in a problem 
or managing a problem so it doesn't become an acute problem, the cheaper that healthcare gets overall. And one of the things that we've been able to see in the data for years now, and this is why I think there is so much bipartisan support, is if you have these community health centers out in hard to serve areas, reaching people before it's an emergency, the overall costs come down and they're accessing those services, not in an emergency room, but in their own communities and at a time when it's a much more manageable situation for their health as well. And might we also speculate that healthy people can work, earn money, and therefore pay taxes, not just draw on taxpayer-supported services. Absolutely. And, you know, you can't always capture some of these benefits within the program itself. So it is cheaper to fund health care at a community health center than it is necessarily, you know, say, funding uh, emergency services later on. But in addition, there are all these other benefits to the economy and having people working more hours and, you know, fully meeting their potential in the workforce those things impact the entire economy and the local small business economy. And those are all benefits that we have to consider as well. Let's move to the budget agreement that is to be voted on, I believe, before midnight today, this day of this interview, February 8th, 2018. That is to avoid a shutdown of the United States government tonight. A few hours ago, the Reuters News Service said the plan to keep the government operating and increase spending over the next two years faced resistance from conservatives in the Republican Party who favor less spending on domestic government programs. At the same time, many liberal Democrats wanted to withhold their support as leverage to win concessions on immigration policy. Senator Heinrich, can you give us a sense of what to expect with some explanation of the issues involved? And I know that's <laughs> asking a lot. It's complicated. And your own voting intentions. Well, I, I think we are going to get to a deal in time to keep the, the government open, which should be, I, I don't think, in and of itself, anything for anyone to crow about. We should do that as a matter of course. That's what governing requires. It has been so hard to get the current majority in the Senate and the House to focus on a number of these issues that this isn't just about keeping the government running. It's also coming at a time when many of these urgent needs that would normally be reauthorized in September of last year also are coming up for consideration at the same time. And that's why this gets so complicated. You know, you've had a convergence of S-CHIP which wasn't reauthorized in time, which is the Children's Health Insurance Program. You've got the community health centers issue. You've got the emergencies that happened due to the hurricanes in the south and southeast all coming together at the same time. And that's why this has been such a contentious and complicated process. That said, I think we're going to get a much better budget agreement than I would have guessed just a few weeks ago. But when we do that, and assuming we will have the votes to actually get that signed in the law, then we need to turn our attention to the crisis that this administration is creating with the elimination of the DACA program and moving to legislation that will protect those dreamers uh, should be our central priority in the coming weeks. 
And that means it's going to be important. We've got a commitment in the Senate that we're going to be debating that next week. Um, But we don't have a commitment from Paul Ryan to debate or vote on legislation in the House. And I think it is in the best interest of the country for us to fix this sort of self-created crisis that the White House created when they eliminated the DACA program. May I ask, there has been a lot of speculation that Democrats actually could exert leverage to shape U.S. immigration policies and with emphasis on extending protection under DACA for undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children, the DREAMers, You've been a champion of justice in immigration policies and procedures. You've opposed a massive wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. But am I correct in inferring that, as you understand the budget agreement now, you would vote for it, although it does not have built into it an extension of DACA protections? I do intend to to vote for the budget agreement, and I think it's a mistake to think that you can get to agreement on any policy issue by using the shutdown of the government as your leverage point. Uh, there is no shortcut to 60 votes. I mean, we have to we have to pass something here that can to survive a Senate where Democrats are not only not 60 votes, we're actually in the min- minority. So we have to find some level of common ground and bipartisan support for this. We've had some real leaders on the Republican side, but we've also had some people who have done everything they can to keep us from getting an agreement on the Dreamers. And so I think this is one of those issues that is not going to be easy, and it's something that is going to require all of us to really focus all of our efforts on until it's fixed. And we have a deadline coming up. And March 5th, in theory, you could start seeing deportations of some of the most productive members of our communities. People like the Teacher of the Year in New Mexico, for example. That is not in anyone's best interest. And so I remain very focused on getting a solution. But typically with policy issues and and matters of permanent legislation as opposed to budget issues, there are no successful shortcuts. I realize we're close to the end of the time that you have. Let me ask a question, and you may need to really compress your answer. Last weekend, you published with New Mexico Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver an op-ed piece in the New Mexican called Secure Elections Protect Our Democracy. You reassured us that In our state, voting procedures are comparatively secure against meddling. You went on to cite hard evidence of Russian attempts to influence the 2016 elections. And if you can tell us, what is your perspective on the progress of the Mueller investigation of possible collusion between the Russian government and the staff of then-candidate Donald Trump? And what are your views on Representative Devin Nunes' memo challenging the objectivity of the FBI? Wow, that's a that's a lot to chew on, but I'll I do know. my best. <laughs> Sorry, um, I don't have a window into the Mueller investigation. That should be independent. It is independent. We need a Justice Department that functions as a non-political department, and so I I don't have any real insight into that. I have insight into the Senate investigation. I can tell you that with regard to the memo that Congressman Nunes put out, it is sloppy. It is political. 
It is cherry-picked. I have an opportunity to look at that memo in its entirety. I've had an opportunity to see the, the Democratic rebuttal, which has not been released to the public. I'm familiar with some of the background intelligence information. It is very disappointing to see an actively hostile attempt to disqualify and undercut law enforcement writ large for political reasons. We have resisted that in this country throughout most of our history. Unfortunately, right now, we're in another one of those rough patches where people are willing to put party before country in this case. And I think it's a very, very dangerous road to go down. Senator Heinrich, we're very grateful that on this extremely busy day, you took some time to be with the listeners of KURU 89.1 and Gila Mimbres Community Radio. You have been listening to Civil Discourse. Our guest has been United States Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico. Senator, thank you so very much for being with us. It's always a pleasure to be with your listeners. We'll look forward to having you back soon. Can't wait. You take care. (laughs) Thank you. You too.